0: Everything has fashion. Cars have fashion. Buildings have fashion. Our cities have fashion. Literature has fashion. Everything has cycles of taste. And clothing is just the most visible. Like, that's when you look at an old photograph, that's how you can tell when it was taken, by what they were wearing.
1: From LAist Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwan. Avery Truffleman has questions about fashion. Why is it significant? Why do we give it value? And how does it materially impact the world? So she made a podcast to find some answers. It's always busy in podcast land, but last week turned out to be busier than usual. Two stories that stood out to me in particular. The first, Spotify announced another wave of content deals, one with Kim Kardashian West and one with Warner Brothers. That second deal opens up a pathway for Spotify to develop podcasts around characters from the DC comic book universe. The second story. Last week, several podcasters, mostly podcasters of color, took to social media to raise the issue of intellectual property and ownership over shows they produce. This kicked up broader conversations about how podcast companies should be structuring their relationships with creators and whether podcasting is replicating unfair practices from other media industries. To talk through these stories is Ashley Carman, senior reporter at The Verge and a host of Why'd You Push That Button? Ashley, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So I want to take the story about ownership and IP first. So I think we saw a couple of things last week. The most prominent example, I think, is the host of Another Round, which is this really popular BuzzFeed podcast. It's no longer active right now. You know, it's been talked about as like a big part of podcasting history at this point. They took to Twitter to pressure BuzzFeed to give back the rights to their back catalog. Um, and that sort of kicked up questions about uh, who owns what, what is the role of a media company in these relationships with creators. There were also a couple of examples of other podcasters that took to Twitter or social media to to you know sound these concerns. Uh, the Nod, which is a Gimlet show hosted by Eric Eddings and Brittany Luce. It's also a Quibi show now. And also KPCC's you know, former staffer, Misha Yusuf, she hosted a show called Tata Mayam. She also brought up these sort of conversations around not just ownership and IP, but also uh, what it means to get adequate support from media companies. Mm-hmm. When you see all these stories, what, what is of the larger story here that you're that you're thinking about?
2: It's so interesting to me because when you work for a media company, you know, unfortunately, unless you've worked on a very special contract, that the work you produce for them is probably owned by them. And what gets really complicated, and I think this is especially true with podcasts. and I think that's why we're seeing this now is that the hosts of podcasts make the show right so like because it's so intimate because you build a connection with the hosts that is where we're having these issues because you might know that you have this ip that's owed to the company right but at the same time you're like i built this because you would have nothing without me and i think right. that's where this is becoming so complicated
1: a couple of weeks ago there was a story around this podcast by Proverbs Sports called Call Her Daddy mm-hmm. which is you know I think they started out at a very sort of basic contract that paid them X amount of money uh, but I don't think they had any ownership of the show and it was one of those situations where the host got really really popular and it was just one of those situations where there had to be a restructuring of what the power arrangement was and so we saw this kind of weird standoff between the company and the host in that situation we, we're going to see a whole lot more of this as we move forward
2: what people don't realize is when you say back catalog that doesn't just- just mean they're sending you the mp3s to your show that's one thing that, that could be that but i have a feeling what we're talking about here is the rss feed and control over that feed right. which companies are not going to want to just hand over that feed because it can be used for marketing in the future they can totally change that feed around which already has subscribers so you could see why the companies here that tension exists why they don't want to just fork over a feed
1: right one of the interesting qualities about last week's stories in particular is how these were stories about creators of color mm-hmm. and how I think part of the the feeling is that when they were in those institutions, they weren't provided the adequate support that they felt like they, they would have gotten if they were white or if they were you know, of a more quote-unquote quote uh, brand name or something. And so this ties back in these larger questions about racial equity that ties very much into the moments that we have right now. How do you think these contracts and arrangements should be structured moving forward?
2: Uh. I mean, if people haven't read the Twitter threads, Jonah Preddy kind of hinted at the idea. That's that, the
1: CEO of BuzzFeed.
2: Yeah. He hinted at the idea that their feed could be licensed, which is interesting. But I do think going forward, there has to be definitely clauses. And like in the event that you put our show on hiatus or cancel it, we get access to our back catalog and we own the feed. I mean, that is what people want. Or we can pay a set fee and we get that feed. Something like that. Because a licensing agreement means you're ongoing. You're going to have to keep paying for it. And that that doesn't seem like a long-term solution. So I do think going forward, there needs to be a tacit agreement that maybe you get access to your feed if they cancel the show. They had first rights. You know They got the first go at it. If they don't want it anymore, okay, I want to shop it around.
1: Yeah. And, and just to so tie a bow in the story, I think the larger anxiety that's, that's creeping in as well is that... You know, is podcasting going to look like other, you know, media industries or entertainment industries that have historically been creator unfriendly for the longest time? And I think podcasting being a relatively new medium and also a medium that came out of the spirit of everybody is an independent worker and they get to own their stuff. I think there's a lot of worry that as these bigger companies sort of make their plays in this space, we're going to see sort of these sort of bad contracts and bad arrangements float around and that becomes the industry norm. That's not uh, something that creators are very happy about or or, you know, they would want to push back against that.
2: Well, and podcasters are so outspoken that I actually think podcasting could end up affecting the TV industry, for example, because when TV shows get canceled, occasionally you see a backlash. But I feel like a lot of the times it's kind of quiet and it's like, oh, dang, and the fans are upset and then the screenwriters go off and work on new projects and so do the talent. But I feel like we might end up in a world where the podcasters start influencing TV and you see maybe the TV deals start becoming more flexible as well.
1: Ah, we can only hope. Um, Yeah sticking to the subject of uh, big companies and big companies spending a lot of money uh, Spotify, you know, they announced last week two major content deals one with Kim Kardashian West Mm -hmm. uh, of Keeping Up with Kardashians and many other multi-hyphenate things Uh, she is on contract to produce an exclusive show for Spotify about, I guess, wrongful convictions the way that uh, it was phrased to me, and the second deal is with Warner Brothers uh, and DC Comics, or just DC in general that opens up the pathway for uh, Spotify to develop shows around the Um, wide universe of DC comic book characters, but also there's a potential pathway here for other Warner Brothers properties as well. This, of course, continues Spotify's run at uh, very spendy, buzzy, exclusive licensing and content deals. What do you think about the situation?
2: What was most interesting to me about the DC deal specifically is the idea that they're going for kids' content. I'm going to assume some stuff is relatively kid-friendly or at least young adult, let's say, teenagers, So I think that's an interesting place to watch because as of right now, a lot of their acquisition work has been around, you know, quality narrative shows, big names for adults. We haven't seen them really strive to kind of capture that younger market. And why that younger market is so critical is because if you can lock a kid in to Spotify at 16, it stands a good chance that they're going to stay on Spotify as an adult, and they just launched their kids app, too, which is worth noting here. So they, they know kids Good are going to be an important demographic going forward.
1: What's your feel on the Kim Kardashian West podcast? I, it, to me, it, like, it's the, where it's the most interesting is that is is in this overlap between true crime and celebrity podcasts. And so I know. There, there's a so, little bit of juice there.
2: It was so interesting. They're branding it under Parcast, which was one of their acquisitions.
1: I did not know that. That is stunning. Parkes being one of the acquisitions for Spotify, it specializes in these sort of like pulpy true crime ish, true crime adjacent shows. Interesting acquisition, I think, is also has turned out to be one of the more effective ones in that company. Uh, here's the thing: like, do you, do you think people actually want to listen to
2: this stuff? I do. <laughs> more than even more than more than the Joe Rogan show my friends were like wait sure. kim k is getting a show and i was right. like yeah and they're like okay i'm listening and i was like really it's about criminal justice reform and they're like yes I'm like okay <laughs> like i know you're skeptical of the exclusive deals so i'm curious to hear your take cuz i i do think that it could work especially because the product's free
1: yeah everything looks great on paper. like the the strategy looks sound to me on paper but like you know we haven't really seen the first of these original exclusive shows come out yet, and so I, I'm really, I really want to see if the first one takes because that would tell us infinitely about uh, what is going to look like. Last thing on this, does this raise any red flags to you in terms of like the ongoing narrative about centralization and uh, you know, Spotify as podcast monopoly?
2: I mean, it does bum me out a little bit, but not necessarily just because oh, all this content is going to live on one platform. For me, I'm more concerned about the ad side of things. And that's why I'm very interested in their ad technology because mm-hmm. as soon as they start doing all this ad targeting, which they've started, I just think podcasts are going to be more like the web in which your t- ads are specifically targeted to you, which could be a good thing for creators. You know, advertisers will be willing to spend more, but I think they might be willing to spend more only on Spotify shows. And that's, mm-hmm. that's where I start to worry.
1: Okay, uh, thanks so much, Ashley. Before I let you go, uh, any podcast recommendations this week?
2: So, the podcast I've been listening to is Boom Bust. It's the HQ podcast show uh, from The Ringer, so, a Spotify show. A Spotify show. <laughs> it's I've really enjoyed it, and I would recommend people check it out.
1: Awesome. And uh, the podcast recommendation for me this week, uh, I'm really enjoying uh, This Is Not A Drake podcast. It's from the CBC. It's not about Drake. It is. It tells the story of the history of hip-hop in Canada and history of hip-hop in general through the lens of Drake. It's by Ty Harper, sort of a really talented music journalist over in the CBC, and I'm just utterly fascinated by the show. That's uh, This Is Not A Drake podcast. Ashley, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Nick.
1: So before we get to the interview, uh, I just want to be up front here. I've known Avery Truffleman for a while. In fact, we were in college together. And on top of that, she was in a student play that I had co-directed.
0: Well, first of all, I'm insulted that you couldn't see my future as a podcaster from my performance in this student play. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, in some ways, I'm like, well, our roles are still so similar. Like, I'm still performing and you're <laughs> you're you're
1: behind the scenes. Still barking? Order. <laughs> uh,
0: well, not anymore. You're a podcaster now.
1: Frankly, I never thought we'd end up in the same business a decade later. But I wanted to bring Avery onto the show for two reasons. First of all, she had just wrapped up the latest season of her show, Articles of Interest. And second, I think Avery is representative of a segment in podcasting that's really interesting. Singular producers that integrate a strong worldview into their storytelling.
0: The weird thing is I think I'm from, this is another way that I feel like an old, I think I'm from kind of the last generation of people who wanted to work in radio. I could have never known Mm. that podcasting was going to be a thing. I always wanted to work in radio because my parents met working in radio and they always, they met working at WNYC and they spoke about it really fondly. I mean, just like the adventures, my mom was able to go on recording classical music concerts for QXR and You know the events my dad was able to organize. They just had such a ball. They talk, and they both worked at WNYC for a long time, like like a decade at least.
1: I I did not know that they both worked for WNYC. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, that's how they met, and so they were always like, "That's a job." They were always really supportive, and it wasn't you know now everyone's like oh podcasting it's well not everyone i shouldn't say everyone but now there's this idea that there's money in the banana stand especially when you look <laughs> at the news about you know call her daddy and joe rogan everyone's like oh it's a gold mine ding 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 and my parents always knew you're not going to get rich but it's a job like you can live on it and it's fun so yeah that's just a long way of saying like i was a radio person and i really loved Everything about radio, because if I can get a little like woo-woo for a second, radio is cosmic, you know, literally radio waves. And that everything emits a sound that you can listen to the sounds of like celestial bodies via radio waves. You can listen to the sound of a fly's wing via radio wave, like that everything is kind of humming and coalescing in this harmonious universe that's just above our ears, like, so beautiful. And I also really loved how democratic it was. I grew up listening to Brian Lehrer being like, New Yorkers, turn on your, you know, call in and tell us what you see outside your window. You know, one of my first internships that was definitely, I mean, I applied for it and I got it, but there was no way there wasn't some nepotism in there, was uh, at WNYC working for uh, New Sounds, which is just, like, an incredible incredible show. John Schaefer is one of the most extraordinary interviewers mm. ever. He totally ruined what I thought working in radio was like. That guy is just like, you hardly needed to prep him. He's a genius. But we would open up the phone lines, and that was part of my job as an intern was to like regulate the phone lines. And I remember one day we were having some debate about like Lady Gaga. Is she a fad? Is she high art? And someone called in and was like, yeah, I was Stephanie's teacher in the second grade. It was just like, wow, People are amazing, <laughs> and you can open up the phone lines and have this extremely democratic exchange without getting biased by how anyone looks or where they are, and it's open to everyone. And, like, I loved listening to the BBC and how there was a different host every time, that it was really about the, the, the news and the stories and not about how pretty the presenter is. And, of course, there are a lot of things... About podcasting that I love. I love the variety. I love that you can cuss. I love that the timing is different, but I really do miss that era. Remember when we were all like, What does Lakshmi Singh look like? I guess we'll never know. Like, <laughs> or, you know, you'd see like pictures of your favorite personae and just get shocked by what they actually look like. And now that's not really an option. But now podcasters are just turning into. Personalities. I mean, the most obvious example is Michael Barbaro, like, extremely distinctive in the fact that it's the same person, one host, hosting a daily show every day. Like, that's, I mean, just a crazy amount of effort. But it built, like, there's a little cult of personality around him, and people recognize him on the street. And I don't know if that ever happens to Sylvia Poggioli. So that was just a long way of saying I started to work in radio and I thought that was what I was going to do and this podcasting thing totally took me by surprise in a, the most delightful lucky, 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 lucky way.
1: Uh, I, I'm actually so, super curious about this. Like, there's like a ton of romanticism is I think the word that you use. And, um, <laughs> you know, maybe I'm going to show a bit of my cards here. Like, I'm, I'm like, I, I do feel that but I feel like so kind of crusty now. <laughs> just like, you know, watching the amount of money coming in and the discourse around the possibilities change when that happens. Um, and also, you know, with respect to public radio, I think a lot of the stuff that I've been sort of, the stories I've been writing and that this, the narratives that I've been sort of trying to, to pin down has largely been about, like, the power <laughs> structures of public radio. I'm curious okay. from a pers- the perspective of somebody who in is sort of public radio adjacent, but very much in this sort of, like, podcast world, has the romanticism kind of, Dulled, or or do you still feel strongly about these things the same way that you did say you know a couple years ago before you started working for 99 pi
0: oh yeah i mean look i get jaded as much as the next person i'm a notorious hater but you are (laughs) oh yeah yeah i hate because i love like i i just expect a lot because that's that's just the way the world works, right? Like you think you've heard it all and then something comes along that just changes your mind entirely and you didn't realize that things could sound like that. And I remember, you know, I had that feeling listening, you know, you listen to Radiolab in This American Life and you, uh, when I was listening to Radiolab in This American Life when I was a kid and I was just like, wow, I didn't realize radio could sound like that and then that became a bit of a formula and then Mickey Capper, my friend from college, was like, have you heard of podcasting? And then, you know, I listened to Love and Radio and the Memory Palace and 99% Invisible and back then too much information. And I was just like, I didn't realize radio, you know, podcasting could sound like this, especially Love and Radio. That really blew my mind and just like addicted to the new and fascinating ways that people were finding to tell stories. And then, you know, podcasting gets a little bit more codified, a little bit more formulaic which is you know no one's fault it's just what happens when there's a demand for regular regular programming (laughs) but then something comes along like um richard's famous food podcast or um great show
1: um,
0: imaginary advice just like you're there's always that capacity for wonder and it's great the paris review podcast and and i'm really excited to try to take more risks as well. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche that everyone's like, oh, we've got to be more creative and take more risks. But yeah, I'm I'm perpetually inspired by the things that are possible in podcasting. And I really think we've, like, barely, barely, barely scratched the surface.
1: When she launched the first season of Articles of Interest, Avery had already spent a few years at 99% Invisible, the popular podcast about the hidden world of design. She cut her teeth on that show and it was there that she got the opportunity to treat fashion as seriously as art
0: because it's alienating it's intimidating and um you know it's almost like looking at the the world of high art if you look at a Rothko on a wall you're like you know and you haven't been thinking about it for years you're just like what does that have to do with my life what does that expensive thing on the wall have to do with with my daily existence hmm. and I mean, in a weird way, I've been thinking about this concept before I came to 99% Invisible. And so the stars all just aligned in this really, really serendipitous way. But when I was 16, my grandma lived in San Francisco and my aunt still lives in San Francisco. So I came out to the Bay Area all the time when I was a kid. And when I was 16, I went to an exhibit at the DeYoung Museum, which is one of the first places where I saw fashion treated seriously like art. And there's something so powerful about that because especially when you're 16 and you think you're fat and you think you're hairy and you think you're ugly and you look at all the pictures of lithe, beautiful, poreless, flawless models and you're like, I can't relate to this at all. Like, this, you know, you just kind of shut it down. You're like, this is this is not for me. But there's something about seeing fashion on mannequins. Just the clothes themselves, without the music, without, the, without Anna Winter in the front row. You could really admire them for the pieces of craftsmanship that they were. And this exhibit that I went to see was about Vivian Westwood, who I'd never heard of before. And just making that connection, realizing that someone had to invent punk, hmm. you know, it, 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 that just blew my mind because it seemed so grassroots. And it was one of those early, like, baby moments— Before I started working at 99% Invisible, before I was listening to podcasts, actually, I was like, wow, the built world is constructed like this thing that I thought would have happened in any alternative universe that people would eventually start ripping their shirts and putting it back together with safety pins like someone had to invent that. And it wasn't just anyone. It was a fashion designer in a high end shop selling this shit for like thousands, well, not thousands, but maybe hundreds of dollars. And it was in that moment where something clicked. I was like, oh, this is what fashion is for. You know, the people who saw those clothes in that shop probably thought they were ridiculous, like that Rothko on the wall. They were like, what does this have to do with me? This is absurd. This is expensive. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. And then decades later, we have all been influenced by punk fashion, like every single one of us. It has changed the world. It has changed what we consider to be beautiful. It has changed what we consider to be acceptable. It has changed what we consider to be cool. And it just made me really angry that we weren't talking about it, that we thought it wasn't worth talking about because we dismiss it as frivolous or superficial or or snobby or expensive because it really, really, really affects us all and it changes so quickly. Like fashion, everything has fashion. Cars have fashion. Buildings have fashion. Our cities have fashion. Literature has fashion. Everything has cycles of taste and clothing is just the most visible. Like that's when you look at an old photograph, that's how you can tell when it was taken by what they were wearing. Like that is how we mark ourselves as participants of our era and of our time. And it's a beautiful thing and it's a fun thing and it's an interesting thing and I want people to feel nerdy about it, like they feel nerdy about typography or urban planning.
1: So you used a word that that I think really sort of jumped out to me and it's something that uh, I'm really curious about. So so use the word like you, you felt angry about um sort of the <laughs> under telling of those stories and I think there is sort of um I don't want to use the word anarchistic, but it's like that let's rip everything apart kind of sensibility to the show um in oh, particular thank you. It, it, in particular there, there's this sort of um, nothing is real <laughs> kind of quality to this which is very uh, 2020. <laughs> there's a clip um in an episode about diamonds uh, which I think uh, it kind of speaks to this a little bit.
0: When I visited the diamond district, I asked a couple jewelers to look at a pair of lab grown diamond earrings. I know for a fact that these earrings are lab grown. They were sent to me by a lab grown diamond company. And these two diamond sellers with booths across from each other took turns testing each earring. And I am fairly certain that they both got it wrong. What did you do One one. Yeah, mine was one one uh, off. That was actually a jackpot. He said, that one's a jackpot. Because both jewelers told me that one earring was quote-unquote real, and the other was lab-grown. One diamond seller offered to buy the real diamond for between $500 to $1,000. $500 to $1,000 is not... Nothing to old. sneeze it's not at. chicken feed, right. And then the, the other one you'd sell at a very low price. Like, what's a really low it's price gone. for that one? Like, 100 oh, yeah, Really?
2: Exactly. It's fake. You know, it's not fake, but it's lab-grown. Yeah.
0: I don't know if you could hear that, but he said the lab-grown diamond would only be worth about $100. So one earring was supposedly worth 10 times more than the other. And again, I can't emphasize enough that this pair of earrings came from the same laboratory. We value diamonds for their perceived worth so much more than anything about the way they actually look. So I think that that clip,
1: uh, perfectly, I think encapsulates something that I think a lot about when I listen to the show, which is I'm just so pissed that all of this kind of feels like lies to me. <laughs> 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 and that um, it's just sort of the social construction aspect of a lot of these uh, think notions of beauty, fashion, value. It feels like it's taking something away from me. It feels like it's taking a certain f- sort of kind of freedom. But I, I, my sense is that like you didn't, you kind of took that anger and kind of rebuilt it up into something more productive. A little bit curious as to how you think through artifice when it comes to something like fashion?
0: I don't know. i just seen something. I'd seen the truth of something that couldn't be unseen with season one. Because season one really examined the basics of clothing. And I was someone... I wouldn't really... I mean, I love to go thrift shopping. I love to dress really outlandish. You knew me in college. I think I wore like a fur stole for my entire freshman year. Like I enjoyed it almost as a joke and as a lark and as a costume. But I never really dug into it in a nerdy way. And when you dig down into fashion, you do get a lot of artifice. And what's more, you know, what's at the center of, of fashion is slavery. Like, it all comes back to slavery and imperialism. Like, that is one of the foundations of America's: our need for cotton and our need for indigo. Almost every story, when you drill down to it, is about colonialism, imperialism, Slavery, like, there's suffering. I mean, even now, if you think about uh, fast fashion in the Bangladeshi sweatshops that are operating under conditions that we haven't tolerated since the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. It's so tied up with suppression and powerlessness. And it's so ironic or maybe fitting that clothing is a form of power for people who don't have it, that people who can't control the environments they live in or the marriages they're placed in or the lives they have use clothes as a means of seizing that power back. And I just love this idea that fashion is this kind of two-sided coin, that it is a tool of, a tool and a means of oppression and also a tool and a means of liberation in this really subtle way. But at the end of the day, it ultimately made me very upset season one and I didn't buy anything for a long time and I was like, ugh, I hate clothing. I I walked away from that series absolutely hating it And I just felt like I would walk down any major street and just see the sheer number of clothing stores, these huge towering Forever 21s and H&Ms just filled to the brim with this stuff we were going to throw away and people just like mindlessly shopping. I I guess it wasn't like The Matrix. It was kind of like They Live. I just I couldn't (laughs) believe it. I couldn't believe I ever participated in this system so unquestioningly. So yeah, season one actually made me quite furious at the end. And it was funny because there were a few times where I would give talks and people kind of wouldn't get it. They would be like, oh, so what are your fashion predictions for next season? You know, oh, you're a fashion podcaster. And I was like, nah, man, like, I hate clothes. Like, don't ask me about clothes.
1: So why would she make a second season? More in a minute. If making the first season of Articles of Interest made Avery furious, making the second was a rediscovery. Season two is all about luxury. Prada bags, men's suits, perfume, a subject that Avery knows carries some serious baggage. (laughs) Like,
0: like that world is for very, very, very few people. And I definitely came into season two with season one energy. I was like, I'm going to tear all this shit down. Nothing matters. Like, Perfume's a joke. Suits are a joke. Wedding dresses are a joke. Diamonds are a joke. Like, fuck it all. I'm going to burn it all down. Maha. <laughs> and then as I <laughs> dove into it and read more, like, I realized these aren't just about rich people things or dreams that were aspirations that were spoon fed to us. Like, we have all taken them on. These are our dreams and aspirations. Like, it matters. I don't want to make fun of anyone who wants a diamond. That's a really, and, th- and I think that's the thing with the story. I In a weird way, I find a lot of comfort in that artifice to mm. know that diamonds really aren't about money. They are about love. They are about this core need and this core desire we have to feel loved and accepted. And that is what gives diamonds their actual tangible value. And there's no point in in tearing it down or making fun of anyone for wanting to be loved. In season two, I guess the idea was a bit of like, yes, and, to see the the ways that we have been trained and taught to desire these expensive, ridiculous things, but to understand that there is real weight to them. There's a real reason. I, I mean I used to make fun of people who cared about designer logos, who wanted, you know, Prada emblazoned across their chest. And now after talking to Dapper Dan, who basically equated them to these holy insignia, you know, like in the same way that people used to wear scarabs in ancient Egypt, or cockle shells, just like any or Hamsas or Anks, like these holy symbols have carried great weight throughout human history. And now these logos are just an updated version of that. And that blew my mind. And now I really want a knockoff Gucci belt. And I'm so excited to go to New York and go to Canal Street so I can get a <laughs> knockoff Gucci belt. Like, I get it now. For all of these, for perfume, I get it. I totally, totally get it. And I think they're beautiful. And I love them. And I love fashion again.
1: The sort of phrasing that she used there, like, luxury, is this thing that... Um that is so limited or, or not limited, but it's only accessible to a small number of people. But the trickle down effects is, it's just massive. And I remember just like growing up in Malaysia and seeing a lot of people wearing knockoff versions of that as an, as an emulation and, and a way to sort of thought about value yeah. and, and the personal identity and stuff. And I think even right now, that sort of, I think, tension I'm sort of working through is there is a romanticism to the reclamation of this, but I, I can't quite square that romanticism with a sense of... Uh, with the anger essentially like i don't i don't quite know how to productively live and i think that's sort of one of the things that mm. i think you're sure really sort of brings up really interestingly i think it's really fitting in sort of the spirit of of the times which i do find like i saw i, I do find it a challenge in like how do i live in this world like i can't quite fit in it in a way that feels clean or in a way that feels mm. morally uh pure and even though it, it to say that out loud it's kind of sounds kind of dumb but like I'm like, well, everything is you know, kind of screwed and dirty anyway. So, so why not approach with apathy? Yeah. Where do you fall on the question of apathy?
0: You know, it's funny. That's such a good question and it's something I've been thinking about a lot and it has way less to do I mean, it has everything to do with the time we are living in now. And it's something that really scares me because so after season 1, I can't tell you how much season one changed my life and like made me extremely furious. So I stopped buying clothes. um, I went zero waste. I tried to i mean, I wasn't like those influencers with like the little jar, you know, it's like this is all the the <laughs> junk I produced over a course of a year, but I just got really into waste and systems, and i and I went vegan. And I developed what I thought, I mean, this is very Bay Area, right? Like, I know this doesn't fix anything. This is just entirely a form of self-soothing. Like, talking about, (laughs) like, this is definitely a version of, like, a quirky character rather than a system. But I had developed a lifestyle that I was like, I can live with this. I was like, I'm only going to shop at the farmer's market. I'm not (laughs) going to buy new clothes. I'm going to repair everything. You know, I, I I was a bit obsessive. And then this happened. Then COVID happened. And I can't live that way. And also, uh, I kind of slid back down Maslow's hierarchy. Like, I I just need to get enough food to live on for a week and I don't drive. So I walk to the Trader Joe's and use just a bunch of plastic, like more waste. I'm generating more waste than I ever thought I'd be able to. And the other night I was like, you know what? I really want a tuna melt and I'm sad. So I'm going to eat a tuna melt. And I hadn't had fish in a long time. Like, all of these consumer habits, you know, because I think in America we're taught that this is our voice, right? Like, our dollar is our vote. The way we consume is... Our lifestyle is our values, is the way we live or the choices we make. Like, that's kind of the the gospel we're taught. And all of these habits that I worked so hard to form that were very much inspired by articles of interest had to go out the window. You know, we worked so hard to train everyone to bring their reusable bags to the grocery store. And now you legally can't. Like, now you you cannot use your reusable bags if you, if you go to the grocery store. And those examples might sound stupid, but there are all these other examples that I think Loom— Way larger and way scarier. Like, yes, of course, a lot of people are talking about, you know, will we be able to vote? But I think even the idea of like the Me Too movement, we're going to look back at that as something that was like entirely pre viral because of job scarcity and money scarcity. I was talking to a friend of mine who worked at a yoga studio in 2008 when, you know, it was so hard to get a job. And she realized there was a lot of sexual harassment happening in the yoga studio, but she didn't want to say anything because she wanted to keep her job. You know, we're going to be so scared to criticize our places of employment now in this new, strange uh, reality. And also, you know, I'm scared about it in terms of, I mean, this is kind of scary to say, but like I'm scared about what it will do for podcast advertising because soon beggars can't be choosers anymore. I think it's not going to be, you know, I, I have really strong core values and beliefs about what I want to shill for and what I want to advertise for. And I don't think I'll be able to have choices. I think we'll just be Mm. expected to take whatever money we can get. And so I don't have an answer. I think I'm really, really scared for this, like, quiet, insidious, moral unwinding that will happen. But at the same time, I think season two helps me because it has taught me to value luxurious things, which sounds stupid, but I think it's teaching me to invest more in beautiful clothes and beautiful art. So I think examining the idea of luxury and what is precious and what we value and what it means to us is going to really help me. I, was just, I mean, it's so privileged, right? It's so privileged to be like, makes me want to buy more nice things. But I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't know what kind of power we have right now. I don't, I don't know how to, li- I mean, that question that you raised, of like, how do I... <laughs> How do I get by as a decent person? (laughs) I don't know.
1: We typically try to end each of these episodes by asking, what are you listening to these days?
0: Mm. Mm. I've been listening to a lot of music. I love podcasts, but I've been recently just getting very, very into music, just like lying on my floor and listening to music. You know, like this moment has that angsty teenage feeling and I just want to release. And listening to music feels like I'm a teenager again. I can just like feel my heart soaring. It feels so romantic. Uh, well, uh, just... name,
1: name, name the favorite, your favorite track from the mix that you listened
0: to yesterday. Let's go with that. I mean, the song that really jives with the feeling of completing a project and having to learn to sit with it especially in this moment where everything feels like weird and sad and I'm trying to feel satisfied and I'm trying to feel happy but I'm lonely and I'm hungry and I'm excited and I'm aimless and I'm lazy and the song is Fruits of My Labor by Lucinda Williams. But
1: Ooh, good pick.
0: That song, I mean, that's just like looking at the sunset, sitting on my floor, drinking a gin and tonic. That's my, that's my quarantine. Like, That's what I'm trying to do.
1: Avery, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me. I really appreciate this conversation.
0: Oh, my God. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your thoughtful questions. It's really it's really a gift.
1: Avery Truffleman. Season 2 of Articles of Interest is out now. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Qua. You can check out more episodes at alias.com slash Servant of Pod. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios.
2: River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people.
1: So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody.
2: It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28 year old.
1: This is a historic thing coming.
2: And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water deal maker, wherever you get podcasts.